0: Hey, true crime fanatics. I'm Jake Barton, creator of the history storytelling podcast called Historium. And you're listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network.
1: This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Blueberry offers the best media hosting, accurate listening stats, and their all-new PowerPress Deluxe sites, a no-setup WordPress for your website. And it comes with all of the necessary links to share your show with the world built right in. Head on over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up for media hosting, a PowerPress Deluxe site, get that podcast you've been dreaming about started, and get your first month for free. That's right, I said free. That's www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream. And now, on to the show. Warning, this episode contains details of sexual assault and violence against women and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. I am so very excited to bring to you today the second installment of California Dreaming's Vacation Series. What we do is we have listeners comment on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, their hometown, city, state, province, or country, and then I take those, put them into a drawing, and choose one. And pick a true crime story to tell from that location this time we decided to pick three and put those up to a vote the ones i drew were michigan ohio and georgia submissions from jacqueline d karen b and beth michelle so michigan won by a nose on facebook and ohio won on twitter and instagram So what I've decided to do is cover a story from the state of Ohio here today for episode 28, bring you a bonus episode from the state of Michigan, hopefully sometime in the middle of the week, and lastly, bring to Patreon a story from Georgia. That way, I can visit crimes from all the places we had to choose from. So for today's episode, we are visiting Ohio, and this state, by the way, had by far the most overwhelming number of entries in my drawing so many commenters entered a variety of cities in ohio but the one i drew was karen b's submission for cleveland so cleveland it is and thank you so much karen for participating in my drawing and helping me settle on the story i asked karen if she had a particular case that stood out to her and i told her what i had in mind for the show I reiterated that I wanted to cover a big story, one that made pretty big headlines, not just in Cleveland, but across the country. We tossed around a couple of ideas, and we came to the conclusion that the story I suggested would be the story I should tell. And as I've spent the last couple weeks researching this case and watching TV shows and news reports about it, all of the emotions about this case are still running high, but... It's worth remembering. This story is worth telling. Even if you've heard it several times before on other podcasts, I don't think it can be told enough. It's an incredible story of survival, perseverance, determination, and above all, it's truly an inspiring story. And I'm so very pleased to be able to share with you today this very special vacation series episode of California Dreaming, The Tales of Michelle, Amanda, and Gina. My very first episode, The Tale of Random Task, was a story I specifically chose to launch this show, because it was a story of survival. And if you've heard it, you know that the woman at the center of the horrific assault refused to live the remainder of her life as a victim, but rather a survivor. She is one of the few of the stories that I bring you that lived to tell her story, and she was not going to let what happened to her that night, that night that she was kidnapped and assaulted by Joseph's son, define her. And since then, I have been all over the place with the cases. I've covered celebrity deaths, murder suicides kidnappings a bank robbery a doll mauling spree killers people who've killed children and children that kill there's only been a handful where a victim had been left alive and sometimes they tell their stories to the world and sometimes they don't or they remain anonymous which is completely understandable So when I came upon this opportunity to tell a story from Cleveland, Ohio, there was one big, huge story that came out from that city that I felt I needed to tell. I knew the basics of what the story involved, but I really wanted to delve deep into the stories of these survivors. And those of you who listen to the show know that I do try to dig deep into cases I talk about, and I'm going to do the best that I can to do the same for this story as it very much deserves it these girls deserve it and i hope i'm able to bring you a story that despite retelling many of the details of what these girls had to endure i intend to sharply focus on the best and brightest aspects of their story as well the fact that we were able to see these girls home again Michelle Knight was born April 23, 1981, and grew up in Cleveland. She was raised by a single mom, Barbara, and there was no father listed on Michelle's birth certificate. In addition to Michelle, Barbara had twin sons, and later another child after Michelle had gone missing. As a child, Michelle aspired to become either a firefighter or a veterinarian. Sadly, Michelle had a very troubled and poverty-stricken early life. There were some points in her childhood that she remembered having to sleep in her car with her mom and her two little brothers. Her mom was finally able to get them into public-assisted housing. Unfortunately, those were pretty rundown houses in pretty bad areas of Cleveland. From the time Michelle was five years old until she reached her teenage years, she had been molested and raped by a friend of the family, who managed to continue to do so for many, many years because he would threaten to kill her. So it went on, and she lived in fear. Michelle frequently missed school, which caused her to fall behind. And if she did make her way to classes, she was relentlessly teased and bullied and called names because she had been falling behind compared to the rest of her classmates. She was also bullied because of her diminutive height of only four foot seven or about hundred and forty centimeters tall. In nineteen ninety four, Michelle decided that she had endured enough of the conditions that she had been living in with her family, namely the ongoing molestation, so she ran away. For the first few nights, she slept on a park bench in downtown Cleveland. Eventually, she began living under a highway bridge. In order to keep warm, as I can imagine, some parts of the year in Cleveland can dip down into extremely cold temperatures She found herself sleeping inside a large garbage bin in order to stay warm. She was able to get food from a local church food bank, but then Michelle was actually able to find a job, so to speak. She was recruited by some kind of local drug dealer. The deal was, they would provide her with an apartment, and she would be paid a salary of $300 a week, and her job was to be a drug runner. Now, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but that job did not last. The drug dealer was taken into custody, so Michelle ended up back under that highway bridge, back to keeping warm in that garbage bin. Eventually, someone who knew her, who knew she had run away from home, spotted her living on the streets and had her brought back to her mother's house. And she pretty much stayed put but she was back in that difficult living situation. I suppose it was slightly better than living under an overpass in a trash bin. Michelle became pregnant when she was 17 and this led to her having to drop out of high school. She had told friends and family that the father of the baby was a boy that she had had a short relationship with, but she never really did identify anyone specifically as the father. It will later be reported by Michelle's great-aunt that the pregnancy actually resulted in a sexual assault committed by three boys in a storage room at their high school. When Michelle was 18, she gave birth to a boy, whom she named Joey. Shortly after Joey was born, Michelle's mother became involved with a man who she soon brought to live with them in their home, with her and her children and her new grandchild. This new boyfriend of Barbara's turned out to be some piece of work himself. He had a lengthy history of violence and alcohol abuse. And if you're like me, you're already feeling a tremendous amount of sympathy and sadness for Michelle at this point. So many awful things. So much sexual abuse. So much seeming indifference from her mom. And now this new boyfriend? If you didn't know where Michelle's story would lead you'd probably start to think that things couldn't possibly get worse for this girl. Well, we all know that they do. But they get worse even before they get worse worse. Michelle had left her son in the care of her mother one day. But for some reason, Michelle's mother left Joey with her boyfriend, and this boyfriend ended up twisting his leg, causing it to break. When Michelle came home and realized what had happened, She rushed him to the hospital. Of course, you can imagine she was afraid to tell the hospital staff the truth as to what happened to his leg. I mean, what would have happened if she had reported to the hospital that her son's leg was broken by her mother's boyfriend? This was the only support system that she had had. She had no place else to go. They might arrest her mom and her boyfriend. And the worst possible case? Joey could be removed from the home. I can only imagine how afraid Michelle was. So, she lied to the doctors. She told them that he had broken his leg as a result of a fall at the park. But the truth ended up coming out because the sister of Michelle's mom's boyfriend was not about to let him off the hook. She actually called the hospital and reported to them what had really happened. That it was her brother, who was watching Joey, that twisted his leg and broke it. So Michelle's son was immediately moved from the home and placed into foster care. And there was going to have to be a process that Michelle was going to have to go through in order to earn back custody of her son, including an investigation and home visits. All of those things that parents need to do in dealing with child protective services when their child has been removed from their home. Michelle quickly came to the conclusion that the only way she was going to be able to get her son back was to get out of that volatile situation with her mom and that boyfriend of hers. So Michelle moved out of that home and found a room to rent. She then began looking for a job. She was very determined and was going to do whatever she needed to do in order to bring her son back home with her. On Thursday, August 22, 2002, this was the day when this more than a decade-long saga would begin. Michelle had an appointment scheduled at 2.30 p.m. with her social worker in regards to custody of her son. It was very, very important to Michelle to make sure that she did everything right in her efforts to regain custody of him. One of her family members was going to give Michelle a ride to her appointment, but unfortunately, that family member ended up backing out at the last minute. I'll tell you, it just makes me so sad How Michelle's life with her family was like one big, huge, painful disappointment after another. And now this. This appointment was so important to her, you know? This was her son that she was trying to get back. And once again, the family lets her down. And then, knowing what's to come of this... I hope that family member that failed Michelle that day and backed out on giving her that ride spent the next decade kicking themselves i know i would but then again knowing what her family situation was like i somehow doubt it anyway the location of the social services office was in an area of cleveland that michelle was not very familiar with without any other means to get there no ride no money for a cab and even if she had money for bus fare She had no idea where she was going, so she walked. Walking along and no clue where to go, all because she needed to get her son back. This kind of gives you a glimpse as to what kind of person Michelle Knight truly is. You are going to see this kind of determination and then some as the story progresses. So eventually Michelle got lost as she was walking trying to figure out where to go. She found a dollar store and went in there to see if she could use the phone to call her social worker and to possibly get some directions. It was getting to the point that she wasn't going to make her appointment time and I can only imagine that it was so sad and stressful for her to try to get to this place and nothing was going right. She had been asking some of the customers and passers-by if they were able to point her in the right direction and as she was doing so, She was spotted by a man named Ariel Castro. Make no mistake, this is no chance encounter. Well, maybe it was for Michelle, but Castro was out trolling that day. He would say that he wasn't, but I would say that he was. He was looking for a victim, and he zeroed in on one lost Michelle night. He approached her and asked her if he could help. She explained to him that she was trying to get to an appointment at the social services office, and of course, he told her he knew where that was, and that not only could he give her directions, he would be more than happy to give her a ride as well. From what I could find online, it is my understanding that Michelle knew or was either friends with or an acquaintance of one of Castro's daughters and she had an idea of who he was, but I'm under the impression that Castro did not know who Michelle was. So, she accepted his offer for a ride to the social services office, and they walked over to Castro's car. As soon as she got in, she noticed almost immediately that there were no car door handles on the inside of the car, as in, if she were trying to open the door to get out, she would not be able to. So there's a pro tip for you. If you look inside someone's car and they've purposely removed the door handles, walk away. Walk away very quickly. This lack of door handles did concern her, but upon further inspection of his car, she saw a sign in the window that said puppies for sale, and this piqued her interest. She had all the intentions in the world of regaining custody of Joey And what better welcome home gift than a new puppy, right? Right, okay, but is it just me, or is this guy Castro's modus operandi straight out of a sexual predator's playbook? I honestly find it hard to believe nobody ever took this guy for a big, huge creep. So, as they're driving along, Michelle is trying to keep her cool, making conversation with Castro and telling him about her son and how she's on her way towards trying to earn back custody of him. She brought up the fact that she noticed his sign for puppies for sale and told him that her son adored puppies and dogs. Castro latched onto this immediately. He told Michelle that before he takes her to the appointment, that it would probably be a good idea if he stopped at his place just to check on those puppies and make sure they were okay because they had been left to themselves for some time at that point. He explained to her that his home was definitely on the way to social services, and it wouldn't take but a minute for him to make sure his puppies were fine, and there would be no problem getting her to her appointment on time. No worries, right? Right. They didn't get to Castro's house until about 3 p.m., and now Michelle was late for her appointment so she told him that she would wait outside in the car so they can get going quickly. Castro went inside, but he re-emerged a few minutes later and told her that he wanted to give her one of the puppies for free for her son and she should come inside and pick one for him. This is the moment that's so pivotal. It's so agonizing to think about. This guy keeps reaching into his predator's bag of tricks to get to Michelle to gain her trust. To play her emotions, to take advantage of her vulnerability, to use her love for her son for his own twisted agenda. I hate that she could not see through this man's sick games, and I absolutely understand her deep love for her child and her desire to be with her son again. Nobody can blame her for that. So Michelle went inside with Castro. He told her the puppies were upstairs. But it soon dawned on her that this was an eerily quiet house. Too quiet, especially for a home that supposedly had a litter of puppies in it. But she continued up the stairs. She could see Castro's family portraits hanging on the walls. Pictures of his daughters. One of them she knew. These people she knew. So, any doubt, fear, or anxiety... She tried pushing it out of her mind. He had even told her his daughter was in a downstairs bedroom. Just another manipulative trick, as nobody else was there. So Castro led Michelle into a small room, and he said the puppies were in there. And when she went inside, he quickly slammed the door, locking it behind them. Michelle began screaming and crying and pleading to be let out, telling Castro that she could not miss her appointment. Yes, that appointment was all that she was concerning herself with. She knew she was trapped. She knew she was in trouble. But she was so desperate to make it to the social services as well. The room she was in was set up in such a way that it was obvious Castro's intentions were to hold somebody captive in that room. But this was something that he planned out. And it became clear to Michelle that this was going to be bad. Castro clasped one of his hands over her mouth and her nose, and with the other hand, he grabbed her by the head and shoved her to the ground. She nearly blacked out. She could see that there were two metal poles on either side of the small room, with a wire tied to each one, pulled tightly across them. Castro used an orange extension cord and restrained her ankles and her wrists. Then he pulled her arms and legs behind her back, wrapping the cord around her neck. And while he was doing this, he was telling her that she was only going to be there for a little while, that he wasn't going to keep her there that long. It was at this point that he pleasured himself. When he was finished, he sat down for a minute, seemingly out of breath. He told her she needed to be still so he could put her up on those poles. He shoved her face down into the ground and tied a second extension cord to the first one attaching it to the wire hanging between the poles. He then hoisted Michelle into the air, hanging there face down approximately 12 inches from the ground. Her neck was pulled back, her back was arched, and her hands and feet were tied behind her. He shoved a sock into her mouth and then covered that with duct tape and turned the radio on full blast. And then he left telling her that he was going to get some food. There are a variety of reports as to how long Michelle was left like this, but at the very least, it was for several hours. He eventually returned with a sandwich from McDonald's for her. He then moved her down to the basement where he proceeded to assault Michelle. He attacked her, beat her, and raped her. And when he was done... He restrained her to a pole in the basement with chains. Chains wrapped around her ankles, around her waist, around her neck, all around the pole. And he wrapped chains around her wrists. He put a motorcycle helmet around her head and then left her there, in the dark. Michelle's mom would report her missing the next day, but you'll come to find that was about the extent of her search effort for her daughter. And as for Michelle, little did she know that her ordeal would continue for the next 3,910 days. Amanda Berry was born April 22, 1986, in Cleveland, and she had one sister, two years older than her, named Beth. They grew up three miles away from the Castro home. When Amanda was four, her parents split, her dad moving to Tennessee, and she staying in Cleveland with her mother and her sister. Growing up, Amanda had aspirations of becoming a fashion designer. She loved clothing and shoes. When she turned 16, she got a job working at Burger King, which was located conveniently close to her home, only about three blocks away. About a month or so before she was about to turn 17, she started dating a young man she met who was a customer at the Burger King and they soon became boyfriend and girlfriend. On Monday, April 21st, 2003, Amanda left home in the early afternoon to head for her shift at Burger King. And as you can see from the dates I've pointed out, this day would be one day before she was to turn 17 years old. Her family had planned on throwing a party for her the next day, and she had been so excited about it. she had even contemplated calling out sick from Burger King that afternoon so she could go shopping and get her nails done for the party but she didn't. It's important to note that Amanda had left some money in her dresser drawer for that shopping that she wanted to do, as she had planned on purchasing for herself a new outfit for her birthday. She also had some unopened birthday gifts in her room. There were definitely things Amanda had plans to do, things that she was very much looking forward to. Amanda finished all but one half hour of her shift, as she clocked out a little bit early to head home. Her plan was to walk home, so she got on the phone with her sister as she headed home. As she was walking, Castro saw Amanda, but he had his daughter with him in the vehicle. Amanda noticed him and his daughter because she actually knew her, but Castro drove away and dropped his daughter off further up the street and turned around, headed back to where he had seen Amanda. He pulled up alongside her and asked her if she needed a ride home. Of course, she knew him as he was the dad of someone she was familiar with, whom she thought was still in the van, so she readily accepted the ride. She told her sister she was getting a ride and hung up the phone. Amanda soon came to realize that Castro's daughter was no longer in the van, but before she could really become all that alarmed or concerned, Castro started driving and chatting with Amanda. He told her that his son used to work at Burger King too and wondered if she happened to know him. Castro also knew that his daughter attended school with Amanda, and he mentioned that to her as well. You know, all of his predator tricks again at work. It suddenly dawned on Amanda that Castro passed her home, and when she questioned him about it, he told her that they were headed to see his daughter, and asked her if she wanted to see her, and that she was at his house. Amanda agreed, as she hadn't seen her in a while. When they got to his house, they went inside, but she did not see his daughter anywhere, he assured her that she was there and he glanced over at the closed bathroom door and told her it looks like she's taking a bath so they could just wait for a few minutes he began showing amanda around the house and she was beginning to sense that something was wrong as he showed her a room where there was a woman sleeping in front of a small tv she kind of saw the woman through a hole in the door where there should have been a doorknob he explained to her that that was his roommate that's one way of putting it, I suppose. That woman in front of the TV was Michelle. Castro then led Amanda into an adjacent room, which was completely dark. He shoved her in the room and told her to pull down her pants. And then he raped her. And just like he had done to Michelle, he brought Amanda down to the basement, where he taped her wrists and ankles together. He also secured a belt around her ankles over the tape. He also put that motorcycle helmet over her head as well and demanded that she remain quiet. He kept promising her that he would let her go and just like Michelle, he chained her to that same pole leaving a small TV on. He shut the lights off and left her there. She cried and she screamed. She pleaded for help but no one would come. At least not the next 3,669 days. Amanda Berry had just become Ariel Castro's second prisoner. Jordina de Jesus, Gina for short, was born April 1st, 1990, also in Cleveland, to parents Felix and Nancy. She also had one brother and one sister, and she was the baby of the family. She had an electrifying smile, and as a 14-year-old, she would describe herself as social, outgoing, she loved being outdoors, she loved skating, and she loved to dance. She had aspirations of becoming an attorney. She was a student at Wilbur Wright Middle School, which was located 40 blocks from her home. She was a little bit behind in school and had been placed in special education classes. Her mother had always given her $1.25 in order to take the bus home, as she was always worried about her youngest always reminding her to be aware of her surroundings and to be wary of strangers. But Gina would often pocket the money for snacks and gum or candy and would walk home instead. And the walk home would take Gina through areas that were a checkerboard of commercial buildings and rundown places. On April 2nd, 2004, one day after Gina had turned 14, and a couple of weeks shy of a year since Amanda Berry vanished, Gina was walking home from school with her friend, Arlene Castro. Yes, Castro, one of Ariel Castro's daughters, was actually best friends with Gina. The girls wanted to hang out after school because it was Friday, and she wanted her to come over, so Gina gave Arlene some of the money from her bus fare so she could call her mom, who is Castro's ex-wife and to ask her if she could hang out at Gina's house. But her mom said no because she was grounded. So, Arlene and Gina parted ways. And because she had given some of the money to Arlene to make that call from a payphone, she did not have enough money to take the bus, so she started walking. Now, I don't know if Castro was necessarily out looking for another victim at that time, or if he was just headed to the school to pick up his daughter. I've heard both were possible. From what I understand, he was on his way to the middle school and he had seen his daughter and Gina together, but they ended up walking in different directions. It's very likely that this was the point he formulated the plan to approach Gina, using his daughter as a way to gain her trust. And this location, it seems, was only five blocks away from where he had kidnapped Amanda almost a year earlier. As soon as he saw Gina alone, no longer with his daughter, he decided to take this opportunity and use it to his advantage. This was going to be easy for him. And I hate to even think about the thoughts that were running through his head the moment he spotted her alone. He pulled up alongside her and asked her if she had seen his daughter. Gina told him that yes, she had. That she was just around the corner. and They had just been together. And then he asked her if she would help him find her course again this was the father of a friend and she wanted to help and she trusted him and not only that Gina's dad was actually friends with Ariel Castro so she told him sure she'd help him he told her he was going to turn around to look for Arlene but he never did he kept driving headed towards his house and when he arrived at his house he asked her to come in to help him carry a speaker out to the car and then he would take her home. When she went in there, he asked her to sit down for a moment and then he began to touch her. She told him to stop and that if he kept doing that, he was going to go to jail. He tried to play it off in whatever sick, manipulative ways that he could in order to reassure her. And then he told her that she was going to have to go home then, but she wouldn't be able to go through the same door that she came in. So, for some reason, he was able to lead Gina down the stairs and into the basement, and this is where he suddenly attacked her, throwing her down, and attempted to wrap chains around her. In his first attempt, he hadn't made the restraints tight enough, so Gina was able to wriggle out of them and attempted to make a run for it, but he was able to throw her down on the ground, this time sitting on her back. She started kicking Castro getting a couple of good blows in, but he was able to overpower her. Gina tried screaming for help, but that darn radio again was blasting full volume. Castro attacked and raped Gina in the basement. And when he was done, he had left her chained to that same pole with that helmet over her head. Despite all the radios playing at full volume, one in the basement and one in the living room, both Amanda and Michelle could hear Gina's cries and screams for help. Gina had just become Castro's third prisoner and would remain so for the next 3,322 days. Now that I've told you about how the girls were taken, I want to talk about the search for these three. The city of Cleveland had been devastated by these kidnappings, but by only two of them, Amanda and Gina. Michelle, sadly, had been largely overlooked over the years. She did not receive nearly as much media attention as Amanda and Gina, and it's worth taking a look at why that happened. When Michelle disappeared, she was an adult, but... Where she was last seen would have only been a few blocks from where Amanda and Gina had vanished from. As I said earlier, Michelle's mom reported her missing the next day. However, investigators came to believe that Michelle had been upset and distraught over having lost custody of her son. So upset that they quickly came to the conclusion that it was likely she had run away of her own volition. Michelle's mom did tell investigators that she did not think her daughter would run off like this. But with this theory already having been floated, the investigation into her disappearance turned out to be quite short-lived. And from what information I was able to find online, it does not appear that Michelle had ever been listed on the Ohio Missing Persons database. And if she had been, she had been quickly removed because they were unable to get a hold of her mom in order to confirm that she was indeed still missing. Without an active investigation, it seems if Michelle's family were looking for her, they would be doing so on their own, as I've also come to understand that the effort to search for Michelle on the part of the family was minimal at best. And I did read a report that the police indicated a month after Michelle was reported missing, they were unable to get in touch with her, and they subsequently called off their search for Michelle. It might be understandable why police might be a little suspicious of Michelle's disappearance at first glance. She was an adult, and all of us listening, we know we've heard investigators say over and over again that adults have the right to go missing if they want to. And to them, it didn't look like there was anything stopping Michelle from just taking off and severing all ties with her family. And I don't even know if they were aware of the extent of the abuse that she had endured throughout her life. Investigators had also indicated in their reports about Michelle that she had what they described as a mental condition and was often confused by her surroundings. This could have very easily led them to the conclusion that Michelle may have just wandered off, lost and confused. And to make the search for Michelle even less urgent was the fact that there were a few news reports out there that largely indicated that most of Michelle's family members believed she left on her own and from that, we could surmise that there was likely little to no pressure from the family on police to advance on their investigation. Now, if Michelle had been under the age of 18 when she vanished, her case would have certainly received more police and media attention. Even if kids are deemed to be runaways, investigations into their cases continue regardless. At least, I hope they do. They should, anyway. However, There are plenty of adult women that go missing who get tons of media attention, so honestly, there's really no excuses for Michelle's case to have fallen by the wayside. Amanda and Gina's disappearances were constantly mentioned together, but Michelle's case, despite having occurred in close proximity to the two other girls, simply wasn't linked It's easy for us now to look back and wonder why the police didn't do more, especially when Amanda and then Gina were taken from the same exact neighborhood. While investigating, police often look back to other cases to search for clues, suspects, connections. They certainly made the connection to Amanda when Gina went missing, but that did not happen with Michelle. An investigation into Amanda's disappearance, looking backwards at similar cases, they overlooked Michelle. And again, she was overlooked when investigating Gina's disappearance, too. The reaction to Amanda's disappearance was markedly different than Michelle's. Yes, she was a minor, and her story did garner more media attention from the start. The FBI joined the Cleveland police in the investigation. A reward had been established for information leading to Amanda's whereabouts. However... The singular most important aspect of Amanda's story was her mother, Luana Miller, and Amanda's sister, Beth. They knew from the moment Amanda did not come home from work that something was wrong. She had just been talking to her sister as she was walking home when she hung up and accepted that ride. Her birthday was the next day, and she was very much looking forward to that. Amanda was a pretty responsible kid, and she was always where she said she was going to be and she was always on time. She had been coming home from work, and if she was going to go anywhere at all afterwards, she definitely would not be wearing her Burger King uniform. She'd come home first and change. Besides, she had left her money at home, the money she had saved for that new outfit and to get her nails done for her birthday. She would not have gone anywhere without money. Luana and Beth started making calls to all of Amanda's friends to see if anyone had heard from her, But no one had. The following afternoon, Amanda's mom went and filed a missing persons report with the Cleveland police. They talked to Amanda's friends and her boyfriend. And he, too, indicated that it was strange that she was supposed to call him that night. She disappeared, and he hadn't heard from her either. As a matter of fact, he stated that he drove around all night looking for her. Desperate for answers as to what happened to Amanda... Luana, along with the help of activists in the community, feverishly brought the public's attention to her disappearance by organizing community-wide activities such as walks, vigils, and interviews with the Cleveland news media outlets. She had been critical of the investigation, feeling as though there had not been enough done by law enforcement in helping to find Amanda. The fact was, there wasn't any information to be had or found. She often posed the question, How does a child just disappear off the face of the earth? Knowing what we know now, one can see just how that happens. As the days and weeks following Amanda's disappearance passed, the media intermittently kept the story alive in the news, and Luana kept pressing on, doing anything and everything she could to keep Amanda's name in the public consciousness. Of course, at home, Luana was heartbroken keeping everything that had to do with Amanda frozen in time, just as she had left it that afternoon she kissed her mom goodbye leaving for work. But one week after Amanda had gone missing, something very eerie happened. Amanda's family and friends kept calling her cell phone, leaving worried voicemail messages for her. Well, Castro was in possession of Amanda's phone, and this guy, he's so sickening, I'm certain you all know that by now, but... He would call Amanda's voicemail and listen to all of the messages for her. Each day, family and friends crying and pleading on the line, begging her to call or come home. And when her voicemail box filled up, he made room for more heartbroken messages by deleting old ones. So a week after Amanda went missing... The evening news broadcast began that night with her disappearance, and her mother appeared on the news to give an interview and plead for her daughter. Mind you, over the years, as Amanda would later recount, she often watched her family on the news, crying for her, hoping to have some answers. So anyway, after Castro watched this particular newscast, he decided to call Luana from Amanda's cell phone. And when she answered the phone, he told her that he had her daughter, and that she was okay, and that Mandy was with him, and she was going to be his wife. She asked to speak to Amanda, but Castro hung up. Luana tried to call back and left several more messages, but no one ever picked up the phone again. So she called the FBI and told them what had happened, and their response? They suggested to her that the phone call was a prank and it was more likely that Amanda is in on it. Luana entertained the idea that it might have been a prank since the phone call happened on the day Amanda's picture had been broadcasted on the news. However, the FBI was able to confirm that it was Amanda's phone that made that call and decided to release this information to the media to see if it could possibly spark any tips as to her whereabouts, even though they really hadn't determined if the call was a hoax or not. The voice of the caller was described as being a man between the age of 18 and 30, and of course, Amanda's family knew this was not a prank, and if it wasn't, then it could mean that she hadn't wandered off on her own, that someone had control of her phone, and possibly her. Unfortunately, the technology to ping cell phone towers wasn't quite as sophisticated enough to pinpoint the location of where the call had originated. Sadly... Luana would never receive a phone call from Amanda or Amanda's phone again. Now I want to stop here for a moment because there's something else that occurs in the timeline of events that took place in January of 2004 in the midst of all this. Now you've probably heard that Castro was a school bus driver, which is a detail of the story that just makes my skin crawl. He applied for the job in February of 1991, writing on his job application at the time that he, quote, enjoyed working with children, and that he planned to drive a bus and work with young people, unquote. And he got the job. And he actually held on to it for more than 20 years. But his troubles at work began a little more than a year after he had abducted his first victim. In 2004, Castro left a special needs student on a bus so he could get fast food. He purportedly said to the teenage passenger, to lay down bitch and went into Wendy's restaurant this incident prompted a visit to his home by Child Protective Services in January of 2004 who were investigating this complaint that he had left the child on an unattended bus don't forget when they were knocking on the front door of Ariel Castro's home he had two women chained up inside no one answered the door and so they left Castro ended up being given a 60 day suspension for the incident And since we're talking about this man's track record as a school bus driver, we might as well go over all of his other infractions, which didn't really occur until another five years or so later. In 2009, he was suspended for another 60 days for making an unsafe, not to mention illegal U-turn in heavy traffic with a bus full of kids. And then on February 14, 2012, he was caught carrying several bags full of groceries as he was using the school bus to go shopping. When questioned by union officials, he acknowledged that he used the bus for personal business. When asked if he made a habit of stopping at the store with his bus, he said yes, he did. Apparently, despite the questioning and the suspensions, he managed to forge on in his job driving that bus, because in September of 2012, he had left his bus parked with the door unlocked and ajar outside of school, and walked away from it, leaving it unattended for hours. When asked about the incident, he told his supervisors that he went home to rest because he was tired. He was subsequently fired from his job, finally. Isn't it weird how many serious incidents Castro was involved in before he was finally let go? There's gotta be plenty of people in Cleveland qualified to drive a school bus. Why hang on to this guy with all his crazy antics for so long? Maybe it's a union thing. I don't know. Okay, so back to the timeline of the search for the missing girls. Almost one year after Amanda had vanished, something would happen that would thrust her disappearance back into the media. Another girl vanished. Gina. She was a good kid. A kid with no history of running away. A kid close to her family. A kid like Amanda. Gina disappeared only five blocks away from where Amanda had disappeared from. The lead investigators from the Cleveland police and the FBI, who had been working on Amanda's case for a year at this point, were immediately contacted about this disappearance. Investigators were very quick to point out that they were very familiar with the neighborhood. They had gone through it with a fine tooth comb, supposedly, as they had spent a year now looking for Amanda. Investigators assured the community that they found it to be a safe area, despite the fact that now two girls have gone missing within five blocks and one year of each other. Dozens of police and FBI were called in as soon as Gina had been reported missing. There were hundreds of leads right off the bat. They conducted many interviews and they searched countless abandoned fields, houses, and businesses Each morning, the tips they received were organized and prioritized, and they would check in with each other at the end of the day and exchange notes. All of their information would be inputted into a central database. But every day started with hope, and it kept ending with dead ends and renewed heartbreak for the families of the missing girls day in and day out. And this is how it would be for years and years to come. Once Gina went missing, the urgency to find the missing girls amplified exponentially. What was going on in this five-block area? How did two girls go missing a year apart without a trace? Had they run away or were they taken? Nobody had any idea, but it reached a point where it didn't matter which scenario it was. They needed to find facts and evidence of which they had so frustratingly little. They did not need rumors and conjecture, of which they had an abundance. So investigators conducted a search of Gina's room. They wanted to look for clues in maybe a diary or some writings to get an idea of what kind of a kid she was, if she got along well with her parents and her family, and what the nature of their relationship was like. They looked through her school books, and through some of her pictures and her personal belongings. They talked to Gina's friends, but there just didn't seem to be any indication anything was amiss. And the reality was, there was just too much coincidence in the two girls' disappearances. The search for Gina renewed interest in the search for Amanda. And more tips began trickling in for both cases. And while they had been searching for the girls, amazingly, Four other runaways were recovered and brought home. But that was little consolation given the fact that Amanda was still missing, and now another young girl is gone too. For investigators, the question as to whether or not the two cases were linked weighed heavily on their minds, and it was not lost on them that the proximity of their last known locations were so hauntingly close. They were both diminutive in stature, standing only five foot one or 180 centimeters tall. They were both headed home for the day, but were they connected? If you asked investigators at the time, the only answers they had was that there was no reason to believe that they were connected, but they also had no reason to believe that they weren't. One thing was for sure. Despite the passage of a year with no sign of Amanda, and now this, Gina gone missing too, Police were determined to see this to the end, determined to find out what happened to these girls. There's always hope, and hope is something to never give up on, and I can hardly think of a case where not giving up meant more than this one. Amanda and Gina's disappearances were featured on America's Most Wanted. I searched for the episode segment and found it on YouTube, and what I found kind of took me aback. The show actually interviewed Arlene Castro, Ariel Castro's daughter, described by the show as being Gina's best friend. She recounted the day, the last time she saw her friend, just as I had described earlier. They were walking home from school, they wanted to hang out, but her mom told her no, so the girls parted ways. I have so many crazy feelings about how this man, knowing and seeing his own daughter on national TV, Listening to her talk about the last time she saw Gina, and all the while, he was existing right there in the community, driving that damn bus around in plain sight. The show had also brought up Amanda's disappearance, how eerily similar it was to Gina's, and how the community and the surrounding areas were starting to wonder and worry that there might be a serial predator amongst them. It's really sad to say this, but I'm kind of feeling like I'm wasting my breath talking about these searches and the investigation into these disappearances. No answers would ever come as a result of it. All that time and all that heartbreak, the prayers, the vigils, the interviews, none of it would ever bring a conclusion to the suffering Ariel Castro rained down on the entire city of Cleveland. Now, if your heart isn't already aching at this point, get ready because it's about to completely shatter. In November of 2004, Amanda's mom appeared on the nationally syndicated talk show Montel Williams. She was there to seek the help of self-proclaimed psychic Sylvia Brown. Before I tell you what happened on The Montel Williams Show, I want to remind you all who Sylvia Brown is, just in case you don't know. She was an author who also claimed she was a medium with psychic abilities. She made regular appearances not only on The Montel Williams Show, but also Larry King Live, and she also hosted her own internet radio show. She often found herself facing criticism and being discredited for making these supposed psychic pronouncements that would later be proven false. Let's talk about some of Sylvia's misses. In February of 1997 on Montel, Sylvia told the family of unsolved murder victim Dana Satterfield that she was the victim of a man who was an out-of-state construction worker that had no connection to Dana, opportunistically choosing her. Nine years later, Jonathan Bick, who attempted to date Dana, was convicted of her murder based on witness and DNA evidence. On September 24, 1998, also on Montel, Sylvia told the mother of missing person Erica Frazier that she was in water and someone named Chris had killed her. The next day, her ex-boyfriend, Chris Miner, killed himself, with police stating that he was not a suspect and he had had a solid alibi. Erica is still missing. On April 29, 1999, on Montel, Sylvia told the parents of missing six-year-old Opal Joe Jennings that she had been forced into slavery in Japan. However, the following year, pedophile Richard Lee Franks was charged with the kidnapping and subsequently convicted. Opal Joe's remains were discovered in 2003, and it was concluded she died within hours of her abduction of severe trauma to the head. On September 30, 1999, on Montel, Sylvia told the family of missing person, Eve Brown, that she was well and living in Florida. Eve's body was found a year later at a Brooklyn, New York construction site, 13 miles from where she was last seen. In February of 2001, again on Montel, Sylvia told the widow of Jamie Barker, who had fallen from a bridge while working, that he had died quickly and his body was on the site but they wouldn't find it unless they dug. Two months later, Jamie's body was found downstream, and an autopsy later revealed that he had no broken bones or head injuries. His cause of death was drowning. On March 13, 2002, also in Montel, Sylvia told a family of missing person, Linda McClelland, that she was not dead, that she was in Orlando, Florida, taken by a man with the initials M.J., and that her family would find her soon. A year later, Linda's body was found near her home in Pennsylvania, and David Rapasky was eventually convicted of her murder. On November 27, 2002, Sylvia told the mother of missing person Holly Crusen, that she was in Los Angeles, that she was on drugs, and she was working as a dancer in an adult entertainment nightclub, and that she might get a Christmas card postmarked from Los Angeles. Upon hearing this, her mom began to make regular visits to L.A., searching for her daughter in nightclubs, but was never able to find her. Mom ended up passing away in 2003 of an aneurysm, with no answers. Three years later, Holly was discovered as an unidentified homicide victim in 1996 in the San Diego area. Her remains had been sitting in the medical examiner's office for 10 years. On February 26, 2003, Sylvia told the parents of missing person Sean Hornbeck that he was dead. Well, he was found alive in 2007. On May 14, 2004, on Montel, Sylvia told the family of missing person John Slayton that he was killed by indigence and his body was disposed of in water and he would not be found. One month later, his body was found in a shallow grave and three years later, His killer, a pawnbroker, was found guilty of his murder. On November 18, 2003, Sylvia told the mother of missing person Erica Barker that she wasn't dead and that someone sold her for drugs in Michigan and a black woman was involved. In 2005, Christian John Gabriel was convicted of moving and concealing Erica's body in Ohio, burying it after he hit her with his van. Her body was never found. On February 11, 2004, on Montel, Sylvia told the mother of missing person Ryan Ketcher that two boys got terribly frightened and they dropped him into a metal shaft of some sort. He was found a little more than two years later underwater in his car, the autopsy revealing that he had been driving under the influence. In January of 2006, Sylvia told a news radio show during a live broadcast that she knew miners trapped in a West Virginia mining accident would be found alive. However, during the actual broadcast that she appeared on, it was announced that all but one were dead. After the announcement, she changed what she had said and stated, "I don't think there's anybody alive, maybe one." On April 26, 2006, Sylvia told the fiance of Robert Hayes, who was killed at an ATM and his case had been unsolved, that he had met a man at a casino. took Robert and robbed him for his casino winnings. As it would turn out, Robert did tell his fiancé that he was going to the casino, but he was actually headed to meet another woman. But that was all a ruse as well. He was the victim of a conspiracy by four people, including a local beauty queen, who lured him to meet her so they could rob him. A year and a half later, all the suspects would be caught, subsequently, they pled guilty to Robert's murder. So you get the picture about Sylvia, right? Well, she did this to Amanda's mother too, on the Montel Williams show in November of 2004. Luana had gone to see Sylvia Brown, and what she was told devastated her. She did say or mention that she was maybe in a house or under a house, but she was no longer alive luana asked her if she was ever going to see her again and sylvia brown said yes in heaven in a way i guess you could say that could be kind of true because about two years later luana would pass away after being hospitalized with pancreatitis along with several other health ailments seven years before her daughter would ever be found for those three years From the time Amanda failed to come home until the time she died, Luana never gave up hope. She never stopped looking, even buying Christmas gifts for her every year. People who knew Luana could see how Amanda's disappearance took a toll on her, as her health steadily declined. I don't think it would be remiss to say Luana died of a broken heart. And of course... Hers would not be the only heart that broke upon hearing Sylvia Brown say that Amanda was no longer alive. Amanda herself was watching the episode of Montel Williams while she was shackled in front of that little black-and-white TV that Castro had provided for her. She had been hoping that her mom would go on the show and speak to Sylvia so she could tell her mom that she was alive. She saw Sylvia tell her mom that she was no longer alive. Amanda broke down into tears upon hearing Sylvia speak those words to her mother in disbelief that she would say something like that. And then Amanda would see her mom break down on TV and cry as well. Luana did go to her grave, devastated and heartbroken, but without ever having lost hope. I am now going to bring part one of this episode to a close. Next week, we'll take you to the day Michelle, Amanda, and Gina emerged from that home on Seymour Avenue. I'll tell you about the first people who were on the scene. Witnesses, Good Samaritans, first responders, and police. I'm going to talk about how and why this sick secret world of Ariel Castro's began to unravel. And I'll talk a little bit about the details that emerged from some of the court proceedings and how Michelle... Amanda and Gina, are doing in the wake of all of this. I'm also going to have the pleasure of telling you about a conversation I was lucky to have actually today, as I'm recording this, we spoke earlier, but I'm going to talk about our conversation in part two, with a Cleveland resident who watched this whole ordeal unfold in her beloved hometown. I know this story hit Cleveland hard, and I don't know about any of you listening, but I did not hear about these disappearances until the reappearances. I really wanted to know what it was like for this entire thing to happen from start to finish. Your comments and feedback are more than welcome when it comes to this and every episode that I create for your listening pleasure. Join the California Dreaming Facebook group, like the page, and follow me on Twitter and Instagram so we can hash it out on there. The feedback about last week's episode on Vincent Brothers... Had some of you certain that he's guilty, and some of you unsure as to whether or not he did it. I want to thank everyone who shared their thoughts about that episode. I tend to think the guy's guilty, but there's an itty bitty bit of doubt, enough for me to feel his death penalty sentence should be reconsidered. Anyway, I hope for some of us we were able to get to the bottom of that. California Dreaming has also proudly become a part of the Orbital Jigsaw Network, home to an eclectic family of podcasts, including The Concession Stand, Super Nerds UK, Busted Wide Open, The Dirty Bits, Historium, Is This Adulting, 4-1-Owned, and Film Roast. You can find all of us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com and stream all of our shows in one place. You can also find links to our merchandise store at TeePublic. You can support your favorite podcaster and still get a little something for yourself. A t-shirt, mug, hoodie, tote bag, all sorts of stuff. Follow the link at the merchandise store, again at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Also, don't forget if you support California Dreaming on Patreon, I've recently posted a follow-up to episode 26, The Tale of Polly Class, where I discuss the work her father, Mark Class, has done in the years since her death, as well as discuss some of the controversial laws that went into effect after Polly was abducted and murdered, including Megan's Law and the Three Strikes Law. For as little as a dollar a month, you can access all the bonus content, and you will receive a small token of my appreciation in the mail. Thank you all for your continued support of my little show. I also wanted to mention that, in case you hadn't noticed your feed, I dropped a surprise episode in the middle of the week. It was a story I worked on with Justin, the host of the Mysterious Circumstances podcast, and we took on the timeline and theories of missing California college student Bryce Laspisa. Justin did a phenomenal job outlining the possible theories as to what happened to that kid. I received tons of amazing feedback about the crossover show and I'm so pleased that you guys enjoyed it. But don't forget to tell me what you guys think may have happened to Bryce. I'm interested in what you think and if you have a theory that we didn't mention. Thank you again, Justin, for putting together all that audio stuff in the beginning and your thought-provoking theories. You did a great job. And one last thing before I sign off, I do have a couple of promos from two amazing podcasts, The Fall Line And the Missing Minority Project. Take a listen.
0: The Fall Line is a true crime audio serial that investigates cold cases in marginalized southeastern communities. Our first season, which has just been re recorded, edited, and re released, covered the case of missing Augusta, Georgia twins, Danette and Jeanette Millbrook, who disappeared in 1990. In season 1.5, we covered the 1989 disappearance of Brunswick, Georgia siblings, Monica and Michael Bennett. Our second season, premiering in spring 2018, is our biggest yet. The story of multiple infants stolen from an Atlanta hospital, Grady Memorial, a facility that has been identified as having the highest newborn abduction rate in the nation. Two of those children are still missing today. We hope you'll join us as we search for answers in the cases of Tavish Sutton and Raymond Green and cover the stories of the babies who were eventually found and discover why so many have disappeared from Brady in the first place. Our season preview drops February 20th, and we hope you'll tune in. have been looking for Ivan Aguilar. He went missing in May 2014 at the age of about a little girl who seemingly vanished from Milwaukee, Alexis It's reported missing by his adoptive father. We started this podcast to help
1: find the missing who aren't otherwise covered in the media. We call, we request information. We're still left with nothing, and we need your help to solve them. Somebody out there has to know something. Mommy. her. I miss her. Join us for our true crime podcast that covers the disappearances of missing minorities and LGBTQ persons. These cases are solvable. Someone just needs to listen. This is the Missing Minority Project podcast. Thank you again for listening, and until next time, sweet dreams.